Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Happy October 12th to everybody out there. A couple different names for this day. Some people still call it Columbus Day. Some people call it Indigenous Peoples Day. I like the approach. I heard about this a few years ago. I think it's Portland, Oregon, maybe, somewhere out there. They stopped celebrating this holiday in October and instead traded it for Election Day and treating Election Day as a, as a holiday every year. And I think that's a great idea. Like, I feel like we all should be out exercising our right to vote without having to worry about school or work or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Everybody in the country should be able to go out and cast a ballot on Election Day. I hope you've registered. I hope you're out there voting now. Amy Traverso is my guest today. Amy is the senior food editor at Yankee Magazine. She's also the co-host of the PBS show Weekends with Yankee, which is a joint effort between Yankee Magazine and WGBH here in Boston. And if you don't know Yankee Magazine, I hope you do. They've been around since 1935. Uh, but they're a magazine that really focuses on what makes New England unique, the culture, the food, all of it. And Weekends with Yankees sort of picks up on that and expands it into a television format. They are in pre-production right now for the fifth season of Weekends with Yankee, and Amy and I will talk all about that. You know, because of coronavirus, things got problematic, as it did for a lot of TV productions, and so they're just trying to figure out how to move forward this year. And for those of you who don't know my background, uh, I'll tell you quickly, I was a producer and director at this old house for many years. I worked there for about 15 years. And I was laid off uh, in March at the beginning of this pandemic. But this old house, like Yankee, has a print component, has two television shows, has a digital component. So it's just fun for me to compare notes with people that are in kind of the same boat and trying to solve a lot of the problems that I spent 15 years solving. You know, it's, uh, it's fun. I've never met Amy, but we know a lot of the same people. And we had a lot to share just with, you know, similar points of view on everything. So, yeah, it's a fun talk. And it's just interesting to hear sort of how they're dealing with, you know, coronavirus and production and all that, but also the bigger picture of taking an old established brand and evolving it for modern times. And an issue, too, that we dealt with at this whole house was the regionalness of it. You know, Yankee Magazine is very much rooted in New England, as is this old house. They're both national shows and national magazines. So how do you make content that resonates everywhere, even if a lot of it is very specific to one place? So we had a lot of notes to compare. It was fun. Amy also is the author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook, and there's a new updated edition of that on bookstore shelves now. So go check that out. It's the perfect time of year to be talking about apples, too, because, you know, a lot of apple picking going on up here in New England and New York, the Northeast, big apple picking time. So yeah, we'll talk apples, we'll talk New England, we'll talk TV, everything. It's a fun conversation. Here it is, my talk with Amy Traverso. Um, I want to start by just asking you how this quarantine period has been for you the last, you know, six, seven months. Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I feel like every time I, I have this conversation with somebody, there's sort of the macro and the micro. Like, right. I feel like in the micro feel very grateful, like, um, to be employed, 
to be healthy. You know, my close family's all been healthy and my kid's school is doing a great job of education. So really good overall. But then, you know, it's just hard not to, obviously, if you have any capacity to see the world beyond your your own small world, it's um, such a, a deeply upsetting time. So right. that I think there, yeah, ma- you know, micro fine, macro, not great <laughs> as, as you know, I think most of us feel. Yeah. Have, are your kids going to like in-person learning or is it all remote right now or what's. Yeah. So the, the school is um, hybrid. So okay. it's three days in school and one school, one day or two days at home. Yeah. The, uh, the virtual thing, feels rough from the people that have heard going through it. Yeah. You know, my kid goes to a very small school that is um, very project based and because it's so small um, and the teachers are just very creative and that was already kind of baked into the culture of the school. They are, they're really doing a great job of making online learning work. But I think when you have, you know, a bigger, more diverse group of kids that you're trying to design, it's certainly like, many degrees of difficulty, um, greater. I'm very aware to, of being extremely grateful for this, <laughs> that we happened to end up at this small school, right. um, you know, right before, just before COVID hit. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I feel like everybody is having to kind of reinvent this, you know, n- not just education, but like sort of across the board, like there's no one playbook for anything right now. You know, it's like everybody's yeah. having to reinvent based on their own community. It's funny, in, in any situation, it's such a healthy practice to find something to be grateful for and to focus on, you know, the positives. It feels in some ways insensitive to do that because I think this crisis has certainly, you know, just highlighted how risk and danger and illness and poverty are like not evenly distributed. Right. That said, like, if I'm looking at, you know, what personally in my life feels like the silver lining in this is seeing a lot more openness on the part of companies and um, on the part of like television productions and media and all these to try new things. And I think particularly as a working mother, I think for so many decades, we were asking for this kind of flexibility and told, and granted, per, I actually have had a pretty flexible work uh, work setup, um, yeah. so I'm not complaining personally. But um, you know, we've asked as a group, please, can we you know work from home a little more? Can we do this? Can we do that? And, oh no, it's not. It's not possible. There's just no way. I'm sorry, right, but right. that is just beyond consideration. And here we are. <laughs> We're doing it, and the world isn't falling apart for people who have, who have office jobs that allow that. But and then there's it just feels like opportunities for creativity. Like yesterday I filmed a um, cooking segment for the Hallmark channel for their home and family show. Um, And normally that involves getting on a plane, flying to Los Angeles, you know, showing up at a studio. And we had, um, it was me and my cell phone and my friend Dylan, who's a a producer who, who brought her cell phone and some good lights and uh, my friend Chrissy, who is an amazing stylist and the three of us pulled off the, and we had two, you know, we had a producer on the computer from, from California and we had a a host in the studio in LA and we did it. Like we did a TV segment remotely using our cell phone. So 
that's kind of energizing these, you know, this idea that if maybe we lower our standards for like HD camera, you know, like if we can just be a little more flexible about how we record and how we transmit media, there's all this opportunity that we haven't explored. That that's that's kind of the, you know, the glass half full look at it. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. I noticed this morning, just I was catching up on some of the late night shows and like, I guess I've been aware of it, but for some reason it just really clicked this morning that like both Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers are back in their studios, but without an audience and they're both dressed down. Like it just, it clicked for me this morning that, oh, they're not in suits and ties right now. They're like just yeah. in a button up shirt. And I was like, I kind of like that. And, and me too. Yeah, and they're talking right to you because there's no audience. So like there's, yeah. there's less performance to it. It's just kind of, you know, right into the lens and just like, hey, I'm this guy, you know, in a, in a blue shirt. Let's chat. Yeah. I mean, what if in, at the end of all of this, our ideas about sort of professionalism and kind of maybe being able to show up more fully as a human being, you know, what if, what if we expand those ideas so that we are, we find going forward that our interactions are more authentic or, you know, um, why do they need to be wearing a suit and tie? Like, yeah. does it make me feel like I'm getting a better experience as a viewer? Right. Um, I, I like that. Yeah. There, it's funny how we have to be forced into change. I mean, and I, I totally include myself in that. I, you know, I go kicking and screaming to every big life change <laughs> I've ever had. And, um, and yet, you know, change isn't always bad um, when it comes to restructuring these right. kinds of things. Well, well, let me ask you, like, on the home and family thing, and I've seen you've done some other stuff, like with WGBH, like on their mm -hmm. social media and stuff, just from your home kitchen. Like, is there, how do you feel about opening up that, I guess, of just not being in, you know, a work environment, but it's it's your home. It's where your family lives. Yeah. I, on the one hand, I love the, um, it's, it, it's, it's the same coin. It's two sides of the same coin. Right. I love that. I, you know, I really honestly will miss like when the day comes when this is over and obviously, you know, in the bigger picture, I cannot wait for that day right. um, for so many reasons. And for so many people, I have loved our more integrated family life. You know, we, we were two working parents, not seeing a lot of each other during the day, trying to, you know, cram in five minutes of conversation at the end of the day. Right. And, and now we're together a lot. And I, I, in general, just love that. But on the other hand, it is harder. I'm finding that it's hard for me to relax at home now because mm. I'm never away from work. I'm never away from being in the place that makes me think about it. That's making me aware of all the things I haven't gotten done yet. Right. So that's definitely the downside. And I don't have an answer for that yet, um, except to like just take occasional like day trips or, you know, we rented an RV this summer, which oh, cool. was fantastic. And apparently yeah. we're not alone. I know it's sort of a thing people are doing and we, re I, I get it. It was a great way to get out of the house, but still feel like we were you know, distancing and, right. and in our own little pod. Yeah. How, how far did you take it? Where did you, where did you go with it? Oh that? God, it was so cool. We went, we went all the way up to the border of Canada. We went all the way up the main coast Oh wow, um, nice. to Eastport. Yeah. yeah. So we could see Canada right across the water, obviously couldn't go there, but it was, it is so beautiful when you get that far down East, yeah. um, Lubeck and Eastport, it feels like Maine as it was, you know, um, I, I, that's such a cliche to be like, it's, it's Maine as it was in the, you know, a hundred years ago, but 
it feels like the landscape is very alive and very vibrant and oh, I love it up there. I really, I, I would go, I, I'm going to, I'm hoping we'll do this trip again, but maybe next year we can actually drive up into Canada and see some of, you know, some of the, some of the maritime yeah, uh, definitely. areas. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been that far North and I've lived in New England now, like, I don't know, 16, 17 years. And I just, for whatever reason, haven't made it up there. Like now I kind of have to, that sounds awesome. You, you really, it, it is, it's, I, I went for the first time a few years ago and it was cause I was doing story researching, um, looking for the best lobster roll in New England for Yankee magazine. Nice. That's and a good assignment. It was the, the best assignment ever. Yeah. And um, and so I'd heard about this place in in Eastport, Quaddy Bay Lobster, and it was a great lobster roll. Yeah. Um, and so it's only for that reason that I went that far. But it is magical. And Eastport itself is this town that has attracted a lot of artists because it's you know very affordable. And so there's a cool kind of feeling of of um, one of those small artist colonies and also the tides there like vary by about 15 feet it's very dramatic like when the tide goes out it's a completely different landscape and so yeah can't recommend it enough that's awesome well you touched a little bit on it there just sort of your work with yankee and in particular i guess i want to start with the tv show weekends with yankee just because you know i'm I'm a tv producer so that's sort of where my interest is like what's um you guys have done four seasons now and are are you starting season five like how has COVID, i guess affects sort of affected all of this yeah i mean i'm so pleasantly surprised that we are having a season five we're in the planning stages moving quickly to kind of get things planned so we can film you know before the fall is over right you know i thought when COVID hit i was like well i guess there's not going to be a season five Mm. Um, because you just in that moment, you, there's so many unknowns, but, right. um, you know, we, we were able to get sponsors and we're working now on just kind of the logistics, you know, figuring out how to make the most of our budget and, um, you know, just what are the best ideas we can execute in this w- brave new world. And we're, we're definitely looking to other productions that are happening right now. You know, obviously GBH is in production on several shows. And right. so, they're learning as they're going and so far they're staying very safe. So we're going to obviously, you know, follow their lead on how to safely um, film, but I'm just, you know, beyond thrilled that it actually happened um, because I'm sure a lot of people were looking at, you know, the the bottom just kind of drops out and you don't know, will it ever come back? And so, um, yeah. And it was, it was very quick too. I mean, it was just like that week in March was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, it's wild. It's just crazy. Yeah, I I think in some ways I've kind of tried to use this as a lesson. Like as a parent, I think we all spend a certain amount of time in life, and I know I'm particularly guilty of this, wasting our energy on anticipating what ifs. You know, Mm, what if this happens? What if that happens? And I can think myself – what is that? There's an Indigo Girl song. I'll think myself in a jail. Um, I can, re- or I can, I can go really. My, my other metaphors. I get myself really high up the tree. I go like <laughs> way up the tree, and right. I need something to get me down. Um, just imagine. And and I was trying to point out, like here we are. We are going to look back at this moment as historic, as horrible, kind of cataclysmic, and yet we're getting through it. And, you know, remember that next time you're tempted to worry about the future too right. much, you know, and things you can't control. Um, but that's a lesson. I'm, I'm saying it out loud so that hopefully I learn <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's definitely true. 
You know, I, I wonder, too, like for you guys, in some ways you have an advantage because it's, you know, all your stories are in New England. It's 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 interesting because it's a travel show. And I feel like travel shows are probably the hardest to make right now. <laughs> like right, you know, not having yes. to get on a plane works to your advantage in this case. Yes, it does. It does a lot. And, you know, I a lot of people obviously this summer um, traveled, you know, within I'm sure all over America, people were kind of traveling within a 200 mile radius of home. And so we have that huge advantage of, you know, having a built in audience that's looking for nearby places that they haven't discovered. And, you know, certainly as evidence with things like RV rentals and, you know, a lot of hotels were struggling, but a lot were also finding that they had people coming and staying. And um, I think even just the virtual travel element can't be un- overstated. You know, the, the the satisfaction of even just reading about places that you may not feel you can visit right now, but right. You, it's very comforting that they're still there and you can see them. We went to an apple orchard a couple of weeks ago and actually couldn't, even though we had reserved a time to pick apples, it was so crowded that we didn't feel safe going in. The apple picking thing is major. So there's a lot of activities I think people associate with New England that we, we, we cover that are extremely popular this year. Yeah, no, definitely. We had the same experience that my wife was like, it was a Sunday morning and she's like, if we go right at opening, there's not going to be anybody there. And this was like end of September. It was like the first kind of really fall weekend. And we right. pull up and there were two police details there, like directing traffic. And yeah, same deal. Yeah. We we're like, you know what? Like, this probably isn't the best idea right now. Yeah. But yeah. I-, I wonder, too, for you, like, you know, your beat primarily focuses, uh, I mean, it's food. And-, and there's, you know, farms are a piece of that and uh, fishing's a piece of that. But dining is a big piece of the types of stories that you tell as well. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like we're in this weird limbo with restaurants right now where, you know, there are groups of people that are patronizing them and you know there are people that are perfectly comfortable eating indoors right now i'm not one of them and i just you mm-hmm. know a, a lot of the people i talk to aren't like have you figured out sort of just how you tell the food story be, you know just as a function of where we are right now with dining and yeah. eating out and everything yeah the, the you know this is i mean one of many areas where i can talk about sort of my relative ease in life right now and yeah. be very aware that that's not the case for so many. And, that, you know, I really can get very brokenhearted and teary when I, when I think about what restaurant workers and owners and chefs are going through, through absolutely no fault of their own. I mean, these people like in the best of times, they are working so much harder than I could ever work right. for, you know, very, very low margins constantly on the risk of going out of business, even when the, the dining room is full. Right. It's such a tough thing. And then to have that be one of the vectors for this disease where it, you know, it spreads more readily. Uh, it's so, and there's just no answer. And apparently, you know, there doesn't seem to be any help coming right. in, in, you know, just as we're, just as the restaurants are looking ahead at winter, hopefully there'll be some answer, some help from outside. It seems like the answer is no there. And, I'm not eating indoors in restaurants. I'm trying to do a lot of takeout, a lot of outdoor dining while we can. The the one thing you can say about chefs is they are endless innovators and they are the most resourceful people. You know, I don't know if they can innovate their way out of this situation, but 
you know, hopefully we can think of a new way to approach restaurants as we get into the cold weather months and think about, you know, what I love about my neighborhood has a lot to do with the small businesses that are in it. I think it would not be nearly the same place without them. So how do we spend our money in a way that ensures that, you know, those businesses will be there when this is over? And, you know, I think we need, but we need organization. We need more than just individual choices. I mean, restaurants are trying to advocate on their own behalf in terms of aid and loans and grants. But I think almost we need like a consumer advisory group to yeah. say, you know, here's here's a smart way to spend your money to help keep these businesses going. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and as you say, like so much of the business model, at least, you know, as of six, eight months ago, was based on filling a certain capacity. And if, yes. you know, you know, take all take everything else out of it, but just the capacity issues right now that you can only fill to whatever 50%, like even on your best night of the week, if you're only a 50%, you know, the profitability is really uh, yes, at risk yeah. there. So, yeah, it's uh, – yeah, it, it, I, I agree brutal. with you. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's just, you know, one one person at a time ordering takeout here and there. It does feel like there it's needs to be something bigger. Yeah, something structural yeah. to, to help them. Um, I want to back up, too, on Weekends with Yankee and just sort of ask, like, when that show first launched, you know, four years ago, like, what was your role in sort of the development of it? I was, you know, I was very much part of the initial conversations because we thought we would need a staff person to at least occasionally, you know, make an appearance. Um, And I had the most media training because I had done a cookbook and um, had, you know, done a fair amount of media for that. So, you know, it, it seemed to make sense that I would maybe be the person to do that. And I had had enough experience being on camera that I walked into it feeling fairly confident. And I now looking back, of course, I realized I had a lot to learn and I have learned a lot. But um, I remember showing up for the first day and sort of just kind of walking on and be like, hey, guys, OK, so what are we doing? <laughs> right. And realizing that that I was being evaluated, you know, that this was a test, mm. <laughs> not in a not in any kind of way that felt um, intimidating or, or, you know, unwelcoming. But I, I realized that they had no idea whether I was going to you know show up and just stink up the place. (laughs) So, you know, I got to, I had my my co-host Richard Weiss is, you know, a veteran and he was so encouraging and helpful and offering tips. There were, you know, certain things that were difficult, like when you have to talk into the camera um, and look down the barrel of the gun, as they say, and, you know, just try to seem natural as you're talking into a camera lens, those kinds of things I wasn't as experienced with. So he helped me a lot to get over some of those hurdles and, um, I, the thing that, you know, coming from a writing background, I think the thing that struck me the most about why I love doing it is, you know, when you are lucky enough to write stories for a living, you get to go and have these amazing experiences and meet the most interesting people. Right. And then you have to go home and tear your hair <laughs> out and turn it into a story and like sweat over a laptop. With TV, it's like you have these amazing experiences with the most interesting people, and then the next day you have another experience <laughs> with another interesting friend. You just keep moving, and um, that's really nice. You know, yeah. it has its other challenges, but that's super nice. Um, I just want to say, going back though to the question about restaurants, I mean, I think one of the things that's great about Yankee that I relish is, you know, we're really like the food section is definitely more re- driven by recipes than by restaurant coverage. Sure. Um, our restaurant coverage is more of our travel coverage, and that's really important. But, you know, as a recipe developer, I feel energized 
because I think what I'm doing now is truly useful to people in a way that maybe it didn't feel as useful to them when they were busier and they were not spending much time at home and cooking was this chore they might have time for on the weekend, you know, and now people I think are finding that it's like a stress release. It's obviously a practical skill that is, is helpful. Right. It's a way to kind of make a lemon out of lemons. So, um, that the, the recipe development part has been really satisfying and I'm glad that I know how to do that because if I was just a restaurant writer, it would be definitely a, a more precarious career right now. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I'm really curious about that process of, you know, recipe development. Like we've had a couple of times recently where, you know, family or friends have asked for a recipe um, or, you know, a family heirloom type recipe, even like my cousin's kind of putting together a family cookbook right now. And he was oh, like, neat. you know, send us, you know, whatever recipe you have. But for me, like things that I remember, you know, my mother or my grandmother making, they're all things from a cookbook. Like there's very little that like, you know, even thinking for me, like I've modified things that I've learned. But to try to write that down, like I don't know that the way I do it would make sense to somebody else or would even you know, work in someone else's kitchen. Like, where do you start when you're coming up with a recipe? And how do you, how do you vet it to make sure that, you know, it's going to make sense to someone reading it and cooking along with you? I think the the recipe writing is definitely a learned skill that I've been fortunate to have amazing editors over the years who've really taught me how to write clear recipes. And I you know, in particular, I wrote this book called The Apple Lover's Cookbook, which we just re- released a new and updated edition of. My original editor was this woman, Maria Guarnaschelli, who is kind of a, a legend in the cookbook world. She worked with a lot of the greats. She, re- she retired a few years ago, but I really learned a lot from her. Like she just went through and was like, this is not clear. This is not clear. You know, yeah. you don't say, you know, a teaspoon of cinnamon. Is, is it ground cinnamon? Is it cinnamon sticks? Like you need to answer that for people. And so the writing, I think, is a skill that you develop over time, just like any kind of writing. But in terms of the, the ideas, that's so much the fun, creative part. I find I exercise, during exercise or when I'm drifting off to sleep, I'll sometimes get my hmm. my best ideas. Yeah. And today, actually, I was, I was working out on my um, I have a rowing machine. And I was thinking about a recipe for our March issue, March, April. So people starting to think about spring and you kind of want bright colors and bright flavors because you're coming out of winter and I love to do recipes that combine familiar things in a new way so I was thinking about spoon bread which is this generally like a sort of savory sweet side dish it's generally associated with southern cooking but it's kind of a a very loose kind of puddingy cornbread and so I thought oh why don't I I would love you know and I've done other dishes like a apple pear cobbler with lemon cornmeal biscuits. And I knew the combination of lemon and cornmeal works really well. Mm. So I was like, Oh, I want to do like a lemon spoon bread. And then I thought, well, for now I've got, now I've got a very yellow dish and that's not going to photograph well. So I'm going to add some maybe frozen raspberries, you know? Mm. So it's, it's kind of this layering of familiar things. Sometimes you get a totally, what you hope is completely like original idea, but then you, get on Google and you realize there are no truly original <laughs> ideas right. in cooking unless maybe you're like cooking at Noma or, you know, you're like some sort of really, you know, Michelin three-star chef. Right. But in terms of home cooking, I think what people seem to resonate most with is something that feels 
doable and and familiar enough, but with a fresh twist that makes it feel fun. Yeah. So like when you're developing a recipe like that, like you say, okay, I know I've got a, I've got a spot in the March issue and I, I want something springy. Like, let's say you, you run with this for two weeks and it just, it flops every time. <laughs> like at yeah. what point do you, do you have to just start over? Like how much leeway I guess do you have? Or, or are you like, you know what, if I'm doing the spoon bread, I got to figure out how to make it work. And if it's not raspberries, maybe it's blueberries or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I haven't given up very often. I mean, there are legendary stories. There's a, a cookbook author and kind of, he's a bit of a celebrity. I'd say his name's Kenji Lopez Alt. And he wrote a um, book called the food lab and he writes a column for the website serious eats. And he's just a, really amazing at what he does. He's yeah. tr- both trained as a scientist and a chef and there are stories he at one point worked at Cook's Illustrated magazine, and there are just stories of him just trying to perfect, like, how do you get eggs? How do you hard boil eggs so that the yolks are perfectly in the center? Hmm. <laughs> and I mean, there I don't remember for how many months he just made them over and over and over again. I, that stamina, I think, is beyond me. Yeah. But um, generally, I love the challenge. I And this is another reason I love being a food writer. I love the kind of problem solving that you have to do when you have a recipe that isn't quite going well. And then it folds in science. Like for me, food is this window through which I can study everything, Right. you know, because if, if it's not, if I'm not getting enough of a rise, if it's not, you know, if it's too flat and there isn't enough like lift in the recipe, well, okay. So what am I doing with leavening agents and what am I doing with my egg whites? Like yeah. those, I know those are responsible for the leavening. So um, I love that. I love that. It's like being in a lab in a way. Right. And, and as you say, there are so many different factors that like, you know, is it yeast? Is it baking powder? Yes. Is it the way you're yes. whipping your eggs? You know, is it when yeah. you fold the eggs into the recipe? Is it, you know, how long it's rested? How long it's proofed? Like there's yes. just so much involved in that. But yeah, you're right. It's it's fascinating. And yet less that intimidate people, like it all breaks down into, you know, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know certain things because really cooking is about, you know, it's a set of core skills that you recombine in myriad ways, right. but it's not a set of infinite skills. It's it's a limited set of skills. And then, yeah, you're just recombining them. So if you understand how gluten works in general, and if you understand in general how how leavening works or how egg whites work, you can apply that to everything. So yeah. it's it's not impossible. I feel like it's uh, it reminds me, I guess, of learning a language in school. Like when I, you know, when I would take Spanish or something and they would say, well, this is the, the you know, past imperfect tense or what, like they would break down language to a point where I was just like, what? Like, we don't have this in English. And they'd be like, yes. well, of, of course you do. You've just been speaking it your whole life. Like when you when you learn baking or, or cooking or any of it, like it's figuring out that's that that set of skills that like as you say you 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 know how gluten works but you may not be able to explain it you just sort of know from doing and then you can apply yeah. it to another recipe yeah and there are books that you know do i mean Alton Brown you know made a career out of really explaining how all this stuff works sure um Shirley Courier was a she had a book called Cookwise that was one of the first books i read that explained baking um well kenji like i who i just mentioned is great at explaining so there are people who will give you that who will kind of break it all down into verb tenses so that you can apply the rules you know across the board it's really really helpful yeah definitely 
What is it that led you into this line of work? Like what made you want to be a food writer? I was working at Boston Magazine. It was my first job. I kind of figured out, I was thought I wanted to be a doctor when I initially graduated college. And then I realized I, I didn't, I couldn't tolerate the sight of blood. So yeah. that was a problem. Um, and so I was working as a research assistant. What I figured out was the two things I seemed to be good at were kind of interviewing people because I had to interview subjects for these research projects and writing. So, you know, what can I do that involves writing and interviewing people? Well, how about journalism? Yeah. Um, but I was, so I was working at Boston Magazine as an editorial assistant and th there was a food writer who wrote like various features and she wrote little capsule restaurant reviews. And sometimes she'd come into town and she'd need, you know, somebody to go with her because she had to check out a restaurant. So right. I started tagging along and Meanwhile, I come from this Italian family where cooking was, you know, everything like big Sunday. I mean, it was the classic like big Sunday dinners around the table with homemade pasta and homemade cake and, yeah. you know, traditional recipes that we were with. I mean, we were eating pesto and polenta like long before it became <laughs> hip. You know, it was this revelation that there was this work out there that involved all the things I loved and could sort of integrate what I loved best about my background and my childhood into my career and it, it just came so alive and I started reading everything I could and taking classes so I could round out my skill set as a cook. I didn't go to full culinary school, which thank God, I mean, that would have been a lot of debt to yeah, take right. on for, you know, but it is a job where you can, you can learn on the job. I had a lot of passion. I had some skill and I had a lot of real, you know, lucky breaks and was able to kind of prove myself on the jobs. I had like someone watching over me in some ways on getting on this path. Yeah. And it was also right before kind of everyone decided they wanted to be a food writer for a while. So right. I got in just like just in time. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. Just sort of you made that decision and sort of said, OK, these are the things that influence me. And, you know, this is where my passion is. I'm going to find the job that lets me do all these things as opposed to like, you know, well, I guess I'm kind of good at this. I, I could do that job. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds like you mm -hmm. sort of, you found something to fit you. And that, but I was 28. Like I was, I was an editorial assistant. I was older than a lot of the young staff writers, uh -huh. you know, and it, that was a little embarrassing, but it took me, I do think oftentimes the career you, you land on after being out in the world and working enough jobs and saying, okay, what am I good at? Like, where, right. where do I shine? can often end up being a more satisfying path than the one you take right out of college, you know, because you feel like you have to nail it down. Right. But I did have to sort of swallow my pride about being the like the person handling the expense reports of people who were, you know, four years. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily I kind of caught, I caught up eventually, but yeah. um, you know, and I think only there are some risks that probably only feel safe to take in your twenties. I think, you know, I, I wonder if I would, given just the state of media. And I don't, on the one hand, I think there's a tremendous amount of, of opportunity if, if you have the stamina and the ability to kind of build a brand around yourself and get an Instagram following and make videos and put out books. And, you know, I, there are people who are certainly doing that, but it's not an easy time yeah. to be, you know, a freelance writer. You know, if, you, if you're trying to pursue like a more traditional path, um, it's tough. You know, I, I wonder what happens to all those talented folks who want to write and, you know, I think it, it feels sadly like more and more of a more and more of a challenge to imagine actually supporting yourself that yeah. way where it used to feel like something you could do. Yeah, it's definitely there. there is that trap, I think, of, you know, Instagram celebrities or YouTube or whatever, where, you know, there's 
1% of the people that are out there putting out that content are the ones that have, you know, 100,000 or a million followers or whatever. You know, there's a lot more people just kind of toiling at the bottom, I think, trying to do that. And I think it takes work, right? You've got to just like the people that are going to succeed at it are just going to put their all into it. And, you know, if it's, if it's a hobby, if you're going to, you know, go do a day job and then come home and try to cook recipes and take pictures of it, it's a lot harder to, to get some footing on that, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, the amount of time, you know, there are, there are people, yeah, who they essentially have like studios, you know, they, they've built kitchens that, you know, they've, they've made enough money and, maybe you know signed enough deals with you know appliance companies or whatever where they they can build like a professional studio where they can shoot their videos and make their recipes and that is far from what most people are doing and and I'm so curious I'm just holding out and my I spoke to a class on food writing uh, right before uh, the quarantine started and I said you know I feel a little bit like I'm I'm like holding on to a very fragile ecosystem like right. I, I'm in my little sort of biosphere of being able to do you know I do print and tv and dig, some digital stuff it feels like there are fewer and fewer I guess the word I'm thinking of is habitat like I've got this little habitat for myself and I'm just hoping that this habitat will hold out you yeah. know for long enough and luckily even though Yankee is a um, you know it's an 85 year old family-owned company it's a legacy brand they have been smart about uh we've got some really talented folks on the digital side and you know smart being smart about just realizing that you have to keep uh expanding beyond doing one thing yeah while also i think having the advantage that in some ways i think what we do on the print side is a lot of what people are really craving right now yeah. as the world feels chaotic so you know, that's, that's worked out well. Yeah. Well, and I'm really curious about that because, you know, my background's from this old house, um, you know, 40 year brand, not a, not a uh, 85 year old brand, but still, you know, a a legacy brand that people know and, you know, a household name. Like, I I wonder just sort of when you think about sort of core audience versus growing an audience, like, I feel like there are changes that sometimes have to be made to older things in order to draw in new people. But you mm-hmm. always risk when you make those changes, alienating the people that have been there for a long time and that, mm-hmm. you know, are the core of, of your fan base or your revenue stream or, you know, all the above. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you think about that and, and how do you manage that? I think I mean, the, it's hard to have an answer for that because I think all of us are kind of feeling our way through it right. and hoping that we um, are steering in the right direction. I think one thing that helps us is to know that each platform is looking for slightly different things. I envy the, in some ways, the digital team. It's not an easy job. It's so relentless, but they can track, they can actually get real time feedback on what's working for the audience and what isn't. They have the most data and we try to extrapolate from their data, you know, okay, so if if that's what the, the, digital audience, you know, what, what can we guess about what the print audience is, is looking for? And it's an art and not a science, that's for sure. You know, we just had a meeting today looking at sort of um, the results, um, newsstand sales of various covers over the past, you know, 10 years and yeah. whether, whether any trends are emerging that we should pay attention to. It's, you know, 
partly going off your gut and and a lot of trying to get good data to see what people respond to. You know, certainly we listen to what our readers tell us. I love the like handwritten letters, you know, from right. our older readers. And then we get lots of feedback on our platforms from our younger readers. But I think the one thing that I think does help keep us sane is realizing that we can speak to different audiences on different platforms and not try to please everybody in every platform. Yeah. I'm really curious too, like thinking about maybe the TV show more than the magazine. I mean, I guess they're both national, but like, you know, they, they have a, a big audience all across the country, but your, your focus is primarily on, you know, these five States in new England. Like mm-hmm. how, how do you balance that of like capturing the charm and the uniqueness of, of New England. You know, I have to that, say, you yeah. forgot Rhode Island. You said Did five I? states. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know it was Rhode <laughs> Island, though? It could have been any. <laughs> Sorry, six states. <laughs> six yeah. states of New England. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, going going into the show and and kind of conceptualizing the show, we knew that half of our readers in for the magazine live outside of the New England state. Oh, and okay. we, we get a lot of letters saying, you know, I grew up in New England and you, you know, you keep me connected to my true home or, or I've never been to New England, but it just has this place in my imagination and yeah. I can't wait to go there someday. So we, we knew that was there, but we still didn't real we didn't know how, you know, stations would um, embrace the show. And we were thrilled. I think at this point, every state except Hawaii is airing the show, Wow, nice. um, which is great. And um, and so we, we have had to adjust our thinking, though. I mean, on the one hand, you want the show to be an insider's guide and have useful um, information for people who want to come here. Yeah. But I think there are things that we don't always realize we need to explain, you know, because we're we're inside um, the clubhouse and you know all these things are so familiar so it's been interesting having to think of more bird's eye view stories that we maybe need to tell to explain something important or that we think is special or essential about new england that might be um, common knowledge to those of us who live here but might be very interesting to someone living in california yeah even you know certain foods that are so iconic i remember being at the um I had a friend who was briefly living in Boston. She was British and she was about to go home and her boyfriend came over to hang out with her for a little while. And they wanted to go to the Indian oyster house. And so we sat at the bar and they ordered steamers and we were, um, as we were eating the steamers, her boyfriend took out this little notebook that he kept in his jacket and he wrote down the date and he wrote like steamers. Da, da, da. And, he, and I said, Oh, what's that? And he said, it's, it's just, I travel a lot and I keep this, it's sort of a, a list of, exotic foods that I eat around the world and it was so I was like of course these are completely exotic and weird but you know so we try to think that our audience is both the insiders and the you know the visitors and and I like that I like that challenge how do you feel like you know just as everything gets consolidated and you know parts of the country start to resemble each other more and more and you know people are moving around more and we're connected to each other in more ways like what happens to that regional character? Like even in, in your time with the magazine, have you seen that shift at all or evolve? In, it's funny. In some ways, I think it's been strengthened. The New England identity, I think in many ways, they, New England has an entirely new class of brand ambassadors in the form of influencers. And mm. I have a lot of 
questions and concerns about, and, and I'm applying this to myself, about what we represent, particularly as white people, yeah. what we represent as New England. Sure. I think there, we, we cannot think enough, we cannot do enough self-evaluation um, about what we're doing and what our assumptions are. But we're, and we're also seeing, you know, uh, some very successful people who are kind of, um, who have made New England icons, you know, their brand, their, you know, the lobsters, the, the lighthouses, all that stuff. I think in some ways, at least in the media I'm consuming, it's it's really reinforcing this idea of this very special, very geographically finite area where you can have, you know, incredible diversity of experience. I mean, you can literally wake up like on a mountain and then end your day at the beach right. and, you know, see all kinds of things in between. And I also think New England historically, you know, has a legacy of very forward thinking. When we think of the West as being the birthplace of kind of proactive natural resources um which kind of john you know, protection acts kind of, yep. and yeah yeah like legislation but i think new england has been very new england small towns have generally been conservative in a really great way of saying you know there's so many towns where you can't have neon signs and you can't you know you right. uh, things have to be visually integrated and thoughtful um, obviously, when you get to the outskirts of towns, everything looks the same, and it's you know the strip malls. But um, thankfully, we we've had people who were who were thinking about that stuff, um, so that it still feels very, very distinct. And yeah. you know, even when you cross the border into New York State, I mean, just going from Vermont to New York, the architecture completely changes, and you go from these clabbered wood farmhouses to these beautiful stone farmhouses on the New York side that come out of, I'm guessing, the sort of Dutch influence mm. um, and the various sort of uh, immigration waves that, that went that way as opposed to this way. Right. So I'm happy that it, that that's the case. And I, I look forward to continuing to you know, engage in the question of, you know, what, what makes us unique as New Englanders and maybe answering that in a, in a nice, you know, broad and inclusive way without losing a sense of, um, of, of regional identity. Yeah. The sense of history is very strong here. And I think that that definitely plays into it. And as you say, just sort of the preservation piece and, you know, the, the town squares, a lot of them look the way they yeah. did you know, 300 years ago. It's funny. I lived in California and when we moved out, my husband and I moved out to California right after we got married. And I thought that I'd go out there and just feel like, oh, these are my people. Like yeah. we're living in San Francisco. These are going to be my people. And what I found is I felt very unmoored in a place where so much of the ethos is about reinventing yourself and right. starting fresh. And whereas I lived in New Mexico in my twenties and I felt very at home there because there's, you know, a sense of history that goes back mm. much farther than New England. Right. And uh, that to me felt like the perfect mix of being rooted in history, but also being a kind of op wide open frontier. Yeah. Um, I realize I like places that do feel anchored in history, and one of the reasons I like New England. Yeah. No, I hear you about New Mexico. It definitely has, you feel that sense of history in a way that, like, you know, Wyoming or somewhere like that, it's it's similar, but it's just, there, there's no there's no infrastructure there, you know? There, there's not the architecture and, you know, just the feeling of, like, oh, people have been here for, you know, thousands of years before me. Yeah, 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 and, and that the... It's, it's very interesting. And I feel, you know, I, yeah, 
there's so much you you could go down a lot of roads with that, just the way <laughs> history's taught and that this right. idea that it all begins, you know, in Plymouth and not, you know, or at the first landing in Provincetown. And meanwhile, there's a lot already happening right, in, in sure. New Mexico. But yeah, but we treasure our our particular local history. Definitely. You, you touched on it a little bit, but the last question for you, I'm just curious, like you do so much of your work uh, in New England and, you know, traveling around and you, you mentioned your family's vacation this summer. Like when you're not in New England, what's your favorite vacation spot? Where do you love going? Ooh, that's such a good question. We were just saying like, where would we go if they lift, you know, if, right, we, if yeah. everybody was when safe we can to go travel. again. Yeah. I think my, I have to say four things because I, okay, I, sure. I think I'd have to say four. One, no, I'll say three. I would, I would. Drive, well, now I want to know I what the fly. fourth is. You can't, <laughs> well, you can't tease it, four. It was then. two, it was two locations in San Francisco or in, okay. in California. So I would say I would fly out to LA, spend a few days there, drive up the coast, mm. stop in Big Sur, yep. and then go to San Francisco and see all our friends and family um, in the Bay Area. Um, and then I would want to go to London and I'd want to go to Italy and mm. just stay in Italy for a really long yeah. time. But I, those are the three places that I'm craving the most. How about you? I, I love that list. I, all of those sound great to me. Yeah. Um, Paris is on mine too. My daughter's like mm -hmm. obsessed with French things right now and just, oh, you know, that's so cool. yeah, that, but Italy is, and I think for the same reasons we talked, you know, about New Mexico and New England, both of just feeling like, oh, I'm in a, you know, 800 year old village right now. And this yes. house is, you know, yes. the, just the texture on the shutters and, you know, all the crazy stuff there, but yeah. And the food, of course. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. I'm following, you know, I'm definitely following a lot of people on Instagram who live in those places where I can't be right now. Mm. And it, it, it's helpful. It, yeah. it is helpful to see it. Yeah. Well, that's what you guys are doing with the show, too, right? Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's what we're doing. All right. There we go. Amy Traverso. I love what she was saying just about that uh, sort of her little habitat of traditional media space, of print, of TV and feeling safe in that cocoon, but sort of not knowing how long that will last. Uh, I definitely related to that. And it's been fun just to feel my way out through this new media space, you know, outside of television and having gatekeepers and all that. Uh, I love just getting to talk to you guys and, you know, doing it twice a week without having to clear it with anyone, without having to ask for permission, just hitting the record button and uploading right into your ears. It's wild. Check out Yankee Magazine, wherever you pick up magazines, the Apple Lovers Cookbook, wherever you get books. And uh, Weekends with Yankee is on your local public television station. Check your local listings for more information there. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. I hope you'll join me again. Got a great show coming up on Thursday. I won't tell you about it quite yet, but uh, you'll have to come back. And I am at Heath Rosella on social media, so drop me a line. Talk to you guys on Thursday. Stay safe. Go vote.